Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. The evening news has a way of holding us accountable to the songs we sing in church. Did you know that? Is all a really all-encompassing, inclusive word? Does all mean all? Because you can't help but uh, you can't help but thinking that right after an election, half the Christians in the country are happy, half the Christians are upset. And then you come to church and you're supposed to sing, I surrender all. Right? And by the way, I said just something a minute ago that you might disagree with because of your own social circles. It's mathematically proven. Okay? If you're a Christian in America and you're an ethnic minority, four years ago you were in crisis going, how do I surrender all? And mathematically speaking, if you're a Christian in America who's white... Right now, you're sitting there going, how do I surrender all? And the answer to both groups is the exact same. We worship a king. And he's not mad at us, but I promise you Jesus laughs at some of the things that you and I worry about. I promise you he laughs. Because he knows his immense power. He knows what he did to Pharaoh. He knows what he did to and in and through Nebuchadnezzar. He knows what he did to Darius. He knows how he sidestepped Caesar. He had Caesar build roads for him. Caesar thought he was letting his armies get across the empire faster, and instead, this new thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ explodes fast on Caesar's roads. I do not say that for any of you that are right now upset about election results. I don't say that to say don't be upset or that God doesn't care about, you know. But I do, I do say this. I will say this, and I'm comfortable standing on this. There was a point when Christians in Rome, rightfully so, believed Rome was the greatest empire the world had seen to that point. They could not have imagined a Rome that 2,000 years later your 16-year-olds in world history can't name one of the Caesars. Couldn't tell you which areas Rome conquered or didn't or what, huh? And we just as much cannot fathom a world history that if the Lord tarries, if he has not come back by the year 4,000, and the high school students may not even know the United States existed, couldn't name a single president. That is the kind of perspective that our God looks at human history with because time is something he is outside of and above. So I say that to give us perspective 
The kingdom of God has been advancing for 2,000 years and it will continue to advance. And that's what gives me joy. I hope it's what gives you joy if you call yourself a Christian. I genuinely hope for some Christians four years ago, for other Christians right now, I genuinely, genuinely hope that God does you the grace, he does you the mercy of ripping out every inappropriate political hope. I've told you guys for two and a half years, the word Supreme Court is a joke. The word Supreme belongs to one, not nine. There is a Supreme Court, you can see it in Job chapter one, where even Satan has to show up and give an account. And there is one. Part five of Divided Crowded, Undivided Savior. We're going to see really clearly this throne. Because someone left his throne. Since eternity passed, he took on flesh 2,000 years ago. He was not just living the perfect life that you and I should have lived, because he was going to take that perfection to a cross one day on our behalf. He was not just teaching us reality, which he was doing. But he was, get this, while he was amongst us. A male, religiously a Jew, ethnically a Jew, okay? He was revealing to the people around him, he was revealing to us, I am God. And he was doing it in little baby steps, over three and a half years, because if he let out a big before Abraham was, I am, we're going to see that one later in chapter eight, if he let that one out on day one, he gets crucified on day one. There's not a three and a half year ministry. (laughs) He's letting out little bit by little bit. He's showing us what the kingdom of God is going to look like. What is it like to have a king? And I dare say on this one again, because we get the the privilege of voting. The very first Christians didn't have that. There was Caesar, and who's going to kill Caesar to take (laughs) the empire after him? Like that was their world, and therefore their worldview. In that context, he is revealing to us that yes, he is king of the Jews, but he is also king of the world. And that that's what the Messiah was and is. I'm going to save you. I will deliver you, but not the way that you think. I'm going to deliver you from something way bigger than Caesar. Or let me say it this way. If Jesus had been snarky, and if Jesus had wanted to, he could have told the very first disciples, do you know that your leader 2,000 years from now is going to be a salad Can you think of the arrogance inside a man's heart who sits on top of the biggest empire the world has ever known? How are they going to honor you 2,000 years from now? Well, it involves some very small fish, some croutons. How, How well would that play with your pride if you thought you were just all that? 
Thank you. You're reminding me. If you need a copy of God's Word, would you please throw a hand up? We've got awesome volunteers ready to hand out Bibles. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. Throw up a hand if you need a Bible. John chapter 8. Today's sermon is entitled, Give Me the Bad News First. Because Jesus is going to give us some really, really bad news in this text, real briefly, and then there's tons and tons of good news that pours out of it. So we're going to talk about one item of bad news and four items of good news, all related, of course, to who he is and what he's doing in the world, a work that is going to last. Jesus doesn't get turned into a salad 2,000 years later because he still emptied his tomb. He still emptied his tomb. So I would like to use the illustration as you're turning to John 8. I would like to use the illustration of a doctor's office, okay? I've said this before, but in case you're new, it's unbelievably confusing, could you imagine, if you went into a doctor's office for what are supposed to be some routine tests and they call you. Anybody know that you're supposed to be scared at this point? Your doctor doesn't pick up the phone and call you. You know that, right? They call you and say, I need you to come in tomorrow. That's not good. Okay? And you come in, and your doctor says to you, Here's the pill. I want you to take the pill. It's going to fix everything. Huh? The pill that's going to fix it. This is the medicine you need. Take it. It's going to be great. So, hey, I just got here. What's wrong? What showed up in my blood work? What, what happened? Like, what's, what's, what's the problem? Okay? And this is what I've been trying to press in on you for two and a half years. If you've been a Christian too long, that's tongue-in-cheek. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you and I get into the habit of saying Jesus is the answer to a world that's not asking any questions. Or we're not in close enough relationship to provide that answer or the question is being asked in a different way than you and I might think. So I want to, ad nauseum, I want to keep repeating that we serve a culture that generally we all think we're good people. We don't have an admission of sin. If we do, we're confessing other people's sins. Listen, in politics right now, listen to the right and left talk about each other and they use sin-like language. It's not that we disagree with each other, it's that you're evil. <laughs> you know, so now it's total politics has to be total war because you're evil. It can't just be disagreement, right? We use sin language. There's something inside the human heart that knows there is such a thing as right and wrong, brokenness and whole, right? And yet, we've got this unbelievable capacity to go, I'm a good person. And this is what the data shows. This is like hard data of thousands and thousands of Americans. This data has been gathered for decades now. Only 16% of America believes in hell. 80 some odd percent of America believes in a heaven. That means that by singular group, the largest theological group in America is a group of people who thinks, yeah, there probably is a heaven, Hell? Nah, that's kind of an archaic, old medieval idea. 
And I'm a pretty good person. If there's a heaven, yeah, I think I'm probably going. Like that's, that's where American theology is at. This is, if you're a Christian, this is the group of people we serve. We are not fighting toe-to-toe with our Mormon friends necessarily. We're not fighting toe-to-toe with Muslim friends necessarily. The number one belief in America is some general, generic, fluffy God who would never be so mean as to tell me that I did something wrong. He's basically a terrible parent. He's Santa Claus. If I'm good enough, he'll give me nice stuff. This is the group that we serve. So, yes, we are going to teach Christ words as clearly and accurately as possible because Jesus never ever supported this nonsense in any way. He loves us enough to say, as a good doctor should, you are sick, in fact, you're terminal, but I have a cure. And that's what he's going to say to us today. Read with me verses 21 through 29. Chapter 8, verses 21 through 29. Later, Jesus said to them again, this is the group of people that have been pushing against him and asking him, like, who are you? And being a punk. Anyway, I am going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. Can we agree that one was rough? You will search for me, but you will die in your sin. This is not a, an atheistic crowd. This is not a Greek crowd. This is not Amway. This is a Jewish crowd. They know what he is saying when he says you're going to die in your sin. You will die and enter eternity with no forgiveness and no reconciliation to Yahweh. They know exactly what he is saying. Was that, was that fluffy Jesus? Was that hugs and cuddles and rainbows Jesus? Is Jesus mean because he told me that I'm going to die in my sin? He sounds mean. Should I walk away at this point? Do you walk away from the doctor that tells you have, you have cancer? Do you walk away at that point? I hope not. Because the doctor's telling you about the bad news to get to the good news. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to fight. 22. The people asked, is he planning to commit suicide? What does he mean you cannot come where I am going? Jesus continued, you are from below, I am from above. You belong to this world, I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they demanded. Okay, wait, so did you, did you, so if you've been in church, you saw an I am, and depending on your translation, it's in all caps, because it didn't have a predicate. He didn't say, I am the God who saves, I am the God who is with you, like the way he did in John 4 to the woman at the well, I am the, one, the, I am the God standing in front of you. No descriptor, nothing. I am. If you've been in Sunday school, this is the name Yahweh gives to Moses with that unburning bush standing in front of him, sandals off, Who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? I am. 
And if you're doubting that this is where he's going, you'll, you'll see it later in chapter eight because the religious elite, the pastors, pick up rocks to stone Jesus to death the next time he says it. They understand what he's saying. And the very next thing out of their mouth is, who are you? He just answered the question and they still don't get it. Does this show us that we can be very spiritually dull and not see what's right in front of us? Say yes. Okay. Sin isn't about logic. It's about rage against God. Sin is very, it's not logical. It's not what it's about. It's not up in your head. Well, it makes sense. I should murder the guy who's, who's next door because of reason. Here's the pros list of why I should murder the guy. Here's the cons list. Eh, you know, and I'm just going to calmly kind of think it through. Like that would be logic. If you murder somebody that way, you're a sociopath and they will use your story on CSI. Like you, you do not calmly sit there. No, there's, there's a rage that takes over a human being. There's no logic in it. He just said, I am. And then we say, who are you? They demanded. Jesus replied, the one I have always claimed to be. I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me. And he is completely truthful. But they still didn't understand what he was talking, that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man on the cross, his favorite name for himself, Son of man on the cross, then you will understand that I am He. Same I am, right there. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me, and the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases Him. Holy Spirit, would you teach us the Word of God today? God, would you make this clear? Would you get past? the hardness of our hearts. God, give us soft hearts where we're ready to hear your voice. In Jesus' great name, we ask this. God's people said, amen. Here's the bad news for you note takers. Grab your pen. And I've put these in quotations on purpose because each of these points is my personal paraphrase of what I believe Jesus is saying. So you guys go ahead, put your theological antennas up, and make sure that Greg gets it right. If I don't, you know, then do what you got to do. All right. You ready? First blank, what I believe Jesus was saying to us. My destination is not your destination because my essence is not your essence. My destination is not your destination because my essence is not your essence. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus said to them, I'm going away, right? Where am I going? Destination. You'll search for me, but you're going to die in your sin. You cannot come where I'm going. Is that bad news if you believe in heaven and hell? I'm going away. And by the way, this is also super cool. If you say that you're going to heaven, that is a claim to moral perfection. He just said, I'm sinless. He has said it in so many ways. I'm going away 
You can't come where I'm, you can't come with me. You will die in your sin. Different destination. Is he planning to commit suicide? Why is he saying you can't come where I'm going? Jesus continued, you are from below, I am from above. That's the essence. What are you made of? You come from below, I come from above. I'm made of something different than what you're made of. And this is why your destination is different than my destination. What people today call theological liberals, again, I wish they wouldn't use that phrase, people who just really don't believe the Bible's true, they are very, very lax nowadays about very casually casting doubt on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. They go, I mean, come on. I mean, really, you know, everybody knows how the birds and the bees work. Virgin birth, you know. They have no idea how much the virgin birth is at the very base of our existence as Christians. If they had read Romans at all, they would know that anybody born of human, anybody descendant from Adam and Eve have inherited Adam's sin. If he is your first and primary father, you have inherited that same rebellious tendency to put your middle finger in God's face and keep it there. That is what we do in our core essence. Even Christians, our flesh still does this. We do not trust God. We don't want to trust God. We do not love God. We don't want to love God. And don't even talk to me about obedience. The flesh, the old self, we want nothing to do with him. That's what Adam and Eve did. We're, we've got this. We're smarter. He's holding out on us anyway. We're going to do this our way. That is inside every one of us. And for Jesus to not be fathered, sired by Joseph is unbelievably critical because he does not have a link to Adam. Jesus doesn't inherit a sin nature. He starts off sinless. Who's his father? God. This is the only way forward if you need someone who is sinless. There is no other path. And if Jesus inherits a sin nature, and we, and gosh, our, our, the last three and a half centuries have, have really wrecked our theology in a lot of ways. We think everything's up in our head. We think everything is uh, what we believe about this. And so we think that somebody can't be saved until they're old enough to understand the gospel and respond to it. That's nonsense. That's nonsense because salvation is spiritual. How are you going to tell me that John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit in utero and does a backflip when his, his Lord comes into the room? He responds because that's what Spirit-filled people do. They respond to the presence of their Creator. How are you going to tell me that David said, behold, I was conceived in iniquity? He's saying the very essence of what it is to be human has been corrupted because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. When Jesus says, my essence is not your essence, that has huge implications. Because I am made of something fundamentally different than what you are made of, I have a different destination than you. I'm going to heaven. It's what I deserve. You're going to hell. It's what you deserve. Anybody enjoying this sermon so far? No. Nobody's enjoying this sermon so far. 
Because if Jesus' words ended there, there would be no hope for any of us, would there be? Nobody likes being told, you already did something wrong and you're condemned for it. I can't go back in time and fix it, can I? I could even be really sorry about it, but I can't go back and undo it. So isn't it a good thing that Jesus kept talking and gave us some good news? Your second blank, the beginning of the good news. You ready? There's some other things that are not similar. The destination might not be similar. The essence might not be similar. But there's some other things that are not similar. And this is where the good news is coming. My death is not your death. My death is not your death. Look at verse 21. I'm going away. You'll search for me but you'll die in your sin. You can't go where I'm going. Wait, where's he going? Where's he going? Talk to me. How does he get to the Father? You see, you guys are lucky that I'm not the Savior of the world because I like that part in Acts 1 where he just floats up through a cloud. That sounds awesome. Being sold out by my friend, abandoned by my other friends in my hour of need, falsely accused, falsely tried, tortured, nailed to a piece of wood. That doesn't sound like that's the path, though. If, you, if you've read to the end, you know where the story's going. His path, he's going to the Father all right. But it's not going to be a cakewalk. You will search for me, but you'll die in your sin. So he's talking about their death. You're going to die still searching for me, but not finding me. Twenty-four repeats himself. This is why I said. You'll die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Now, isn't unless the most beautiful word in the whole world after all that bad news? It sounds like there's a path forward out of that death that he just said is going to happen. Now, that's good news. Unless... And then again, down in 28, really explicit. So Jesus said, because they weren't getting it. When you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. John loves his double entendre, the author of this book. And the word that the dynamic equivalent translators are saying lifted up on the cross, they're spelling it out for us so that we as English readers 21 centuries later know what's going on. The word there is exalted. A lot of you guys know, if you've been around church for a while, exalted can be a really theological, uh, churchy kind of a word that usually means this person is glorified, honored, praised. And John, you know, it wasn't, we use double entendre today for humor that wasn't John's intention at all. He's trying to communicate two things at the exact same time. 
Jesus will be lifted up. This isn't the king that we expected. It's not the kingdom we expected. Well, of course Jesus is going to be exalted if he's the Messiah. He's going to crush Rome. He's going to deal with Caesar's legions. It's going to be awesome. He's going to sit on the throne of David. And you and I were lost, terrified, confused when Rome nailed him to a cross and the pastors agreed with it and spurred it on and then they put him in a tomb. What's going on, God? We thought he was the Messiah and he's laying there, lifeless. God, what are you doing? I thought you were gonna save us. Did God know that the resurrection was coming? Was God in despair on Friday night like there was no hope? Oh, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Jesus himself had said, I'll lay my life down and I'll take it back up again. And we missed it. He said it clear as day and we missed it. It didn't sink in until after the fact, which is why he said, this is a piece of the hope, when you've lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. The first part of the good news, his death is not our death. He took on the full wrath of God so that you and I do not have to. My death now can simply be a transition from this crumbling, mortal, physical body into the imperishable, a place where there is joy, where love is not restrained, holiness is not restrained in any way. Death is a huge benefit now. My death is not his death. Two very different scenarios. Second piece of good news. I believe Jesus says this through verse 24. Believing me is your path to life. Believing me is your path to life. That's why I said you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Again, huge issue here culturally. As 21st century Americans, we are more likely to hear the exclusivity How could Jesus be so mean that he's telling me I'm going to die and go to hell when from God's perspective our condemnation was really, really clear? I mean, he he could, you know, if, if your spouse says they want a divorce and they leave you and they move out, do you feel it? Okay. God was never deluded about the fact that humanity filed for divorce and stormed out. He can see perfectly, and since he's not a sinner, he can see it clearly. What God sees in here, and what we need to desperately try to see here, 
isn't that just that we're sick, it's that he offers a cure. It's the same cure talked about in 66 Bible, books of the Bible, that salvation is by faith. I trust that his cross was sufficient to wash away my sin instead of trusting in me being great. I am morally great, I'm cool, I'm fine. And of course, that is a matter of faith because deep inside us, we all naturally trust ourselves. <laughs> to transfer our trust to the cross of Christ is it's a totally different planet. That's why I want to keep pressing in on you. those of you who love Jesus Christ. I want to keep pressing in on you to get comfortable being weird. We've been weird for 2,000 years and we will continue to be. There's just a lot. Like, you march to the beat of a different drummer. Glad you mentioned it. Let me tell you about my drummer. His name is Jesus, you know. We have to be different, we have to be peculiar. He says, there is a path forward. Believing me when I tell you who I am. And the whole Gospel of John, he's telling us over and over and over who he is. And simply believing it is the path to life. That's what he says, verse 24. Huh. Well, because I thought I had to give a lot of money to missionaries, Jesus. I'm confused by that. I thought I had to um, make sure to not have sex with anybody except my spouse and not until they're my spouse and... I thought I had to make sure to memorize lots of Bible verses, and I thought that I had to be really nice to the neighbor, even if he's a Republican. I thought I had to do all of this stuff. And Jesus says, believe me when I say who I am. This is why Jesus says, my yoke, my mantle of teaching, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not that complex. Believe me when I say who I am. The whole Christian life naturally flows out of just believing the voice of God and what he says about himself. It all flows out of that. Just as much as we naturally, when we are very young, we do not doubt that our father is our father. He says he, that he is our father, and we don't have a Luke Skywalker crisis because I'm 30 years old hearing for the first time, you are my father. No, I've always known that you were my dad, and you and I had a relationship, and all aspects of your dadness have been defined for me as we lived life together. You want to know how all 66 books flesh out for the Christian? You know the voice of your father. You love him. Like... He's, he, a father leads that relationship, not the child. Third piece of good news. God is not condemning you right now. He's offering forgiveness. God is not condemning you right now. He's offering forgiveness. Look at verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to condemn. Right? Back to the people around him being sinners. Angry Jesus. <laughs> I have much to condemn, but I won't. Why? For I only say what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. God, my Father, who is leading, I'm saying what he says, I'm doing what he does, whatever I see him doing, I'm following his lead. And I could rightly condemn you, but I'm not going to do it, because I don't see the Father condemning you right now. So let's go up to the 30,000 foot level for those of you that know the Bible. There's the first coming of Jesus, there's the second coming of Jesus. He didn't say that 
I, oh, I can't judge you. You know, everybody makes their own choices. What's right for you is what's right for you. No, he says, I could absolutely judge you, but I don't see the Father judging you right now. I see a lot of mercy, so I'm going to follow his lead. That's good news. Brothers and sisters, if we sat long enough really thinking through right and wrong, the second coming of Jesus Christ isn't what should be surprising. You watch our world and what human beings do to each other, you want someone ticked off on a white horse with a tattooed name on his thigh that his daddy gave him. Lightning runs from him and thunder pours out of his presence and he slaughters his enemies until the earth is four feet deep in blood. Like that actually makes a lot of sense as soon as you've been hurt, as soon as your daughter was raped, until your friend was murdered. The second coming of Jesus makes more and more sense. Brothers and sisters, it's the first coming of Jesus that's breathtaking. And we think it's snowflakes and Christmas trees and carols. We need to be reawakened at how unbelievable the first coming of Jesus Christ was and is. We didn't deserve him to come with mercy. None of us could possibly deserve mercy. We're rebels to our core. But he came, and he didn't come with a sword. Actually, he did. If you guys recall, there was a prophecy spoken over Jesus when he was eight days old, and the prophet said to Mary, his mother, a sword will pierce your soul. Jesus came with a sword the first time, but the first time the sword was for him. The first time an army nailed him to a cross, and the second time he's going to show up with an army that he doesn't even need. Because he speaks his own name, I am. A sword comes out of his mouth, slaughters his enemies with two words. The second coming of Jesus makes more and more sense if we see all the awful things human beings do to each other. It's the first coming that doesn't make sense. Why is he so patient with us? Why is he so patient with us? Fourth piece of good news. My death will help you understand. My death will help you understand. Back to 28. Well, really 27. But they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I hope you can hear the gentleness and the pleading of Jesus in this. I can see that you don't understand right now. I can see you don't get it. I can see that you're spiritually dull because you're made of something different than what I'm made of. Unless the Holy Spirit fundamentally transforms your heart, you're not gonna get it but of the many things that I am going to accomplish when I go to this cross, one of the things that is going to be accomplished is you're going to be able to see this just a little bit better. Some of you need me to die a horrible death and go in the ground and be raised to life, not just to forgive your sins. Some of you need to see me go through that to get it. 
And here we are 2,000 years later where amongst those who have been granted the gift of faith, we presume on the resurrection. Or those of us who do not believe Jesus is Messiah, we think that's the silliest fairy tale ever. He says, some of you guys are gonna just need to see this process. Even the earthly leader of the church, Peter. He said, Peter, when it goes south, you're gonna deny three times that you even know me. Don't worry, you and I are gonna have a fish breakfast after the fact. And I'm gonna remind you that you and I, our relationship is totally secure. You love me, I love you. And this is going on for eternity. Even the leader of the church wasn't gonna understand in the moment, what Jesus was up to laying down his life. So you and I can just relax a little bit, not hold our feet to the fire so much. God is always doing things that you and I do not understand, and he is always doing things that are for our blessing because he loves us, and we are consistently failing to trust him, interrupted by little Holy Spirit moments where, whoo, he gave me just enough faith. I actually trusted God this time. That felt good. And if you love Jesus, I hope that that is a part of why you yearn for heaven. Heaven, oh, finally, I'll trust him consistently. Finally, I will give him the praise and honor that he deserves. I'll stop doubting him. I'll stop sinning against everybody else. I won't be arrogant or self-centered in any way. Oh, that's going to be awesome. The resurrection of Jesus forces the human mind to ask one question. Listen close, and then we're going to wrap up. If Jesus always planned to come back to life, why did he choose to go through a horrible death? Ever thought through that one? It appears, me as a mere mortal, if the end point is life, Why on earth would he go through that? You've got the power to raise the dead. You just showed it with Lazarus. You've told us you're going to raise yourself from death. Like you clearly have power over life and death. Why are you going to do this? Any normal human being like you and me, like we wouldn't put up with that nonsense. I'm not going to suffer unspeakable pain if I know I'm just going to end up alive at the end. He's going to be alive at the end. Jesus, come on. We gotta talk some sense into this guy. Oh wait, Peter already tried that. That exact issue got, Jesus, got Peter rebuked. Get behind me, Satan. You're not seeing things from God's perspective. The resurrection of Jesus forces us to ask, why would he go through this horrifying death in the first place? And Jesus told us in advance, what he was going to accomplish. All of the apostles that wrote books of the Bible afterward 
told us what he accomplished. He said, you can do business directly with God the Father and settle an account for all of your cosmic treason against the Father. You have the right to do that. That's called free will. You have the right to walk into God's courtroom on your own. You do. And 2,000 years later, we still have that right. If you think you're so great, if you think you're so morally excellent, and you want to walk into God's courtroom, we call this death, and roll out your list of all the awesome things you did and see how that goes in front of the Holy of Holies in the Ancient of Days, if you want to do that, you're free to try it. And in fact, most human beings try that path. Jesus said the other path is I take all of my perfection off like a garment and I put it over you so that when you walk into that courtroom, the Father sees the Son instead of seeing you and all your junk, instead of seeing me and all of my junk. That's why you don't just skip to this abundant life he wants to go through a cross because he honors the Father, he loves you desperately, and he wanted to ransom rebels. It was his joy to do it. It was his joy to forgive rebels. If you're a Christian, I gotta ask you, are you affected day in and day out by the unbelievable mercy of Jesus? Some of you guys have picked up that two and a half years in, I still just keep talking about Jesus, his perfection, his cross, his suffering, his resurrection, his commission to his church, filling of us with the Holy Spirit, telling us to go make disciples. Why do we keep just talking about Jesus? Are we going to move on to something more mature, Greg? When are we going to learn, you know, you know what Mephibosheth said? When are we going to move on to the more detailed things where I can r rattle off at cocktail parties my awesome knowledge? Like, when are we going to mature past this? Christian, it is the nail-pierced hands that will inspire worship inside of you for eternity. It won't be anything more complex. And I love theology, and I love deep study. Those are great, but we will never mature past the cross of Christ. There's nothing more mature than that. Does it still give you joy? Those of you that have been Christians for three months, is joy still waking you up in the morning because of the cross of Christ? Like, I know we all have to be reminded. I know we get distracted. You've been a Christian for eight years. Is the cross of Christ still motivating you? Does the empty tomb get you excited? Does it remind you who you are? Is it still your identity? Those of you who've been Christians for 35 years, does the cross still give you joy? Does the unbelievable mercy of God still tell you who you are and how you're going to behave this day as you treat people around you? Does it? Hallelujah. And if you're a guest, if you're not sure what you think of Jesus, I'm going to ask you the same question, similar question. What are you going to do, if anything, what are you going to do with the mercy of God? I would argue you have to do something with it. You can say that the Bible and everything in it is a fairy tale. That's, that's one approach. I have a bunch of reasons why I don't think that makes sense. But maybe it makes sense to you. 
You can take the secular humanist route and say, I'm awesome, I am morally acceptable, I'm morally perfect. You can take the atheistic route, there is no God, I have no judge. That's a route. But if you believe even half of what Jesus said about himself, if you look at countless secular historians who do believe Jesus Christ was crucified, what do you do with that? What are you going to do? This is the central question of the Gospel of John. All of humanity is making up their mind, and we don't make up our minds. We're actually making up our heart. What are you going to do? So let's take a few moments, and we're going to respond. I want you to feel free to take a moment to think and to pray, to write stuff in the margin of your notes that God is saying to you through the text today. I want you to feel free to pray. I want you to feel free to stand and sing. The word of God demands a response. Even ignoring it is a type of response. We're going to respond one way or the other, and we're gonna do it right now. Amen? Amen. Amen.